This episode of Fried Egg Stories is brought to you by our friends over at Be Dratty. Now, there's a lot of companies out there who claim to make the perfect boxers, but we haven't experienced anything quite like the Be Dratty Richard Boxer. Be Dratty took that same Peruvian Pima cotton with a touch of stretch that they used to make their exceptionally comfortable polos to make this game changer of a boxer. They removed the seam down the back to prevent riding up and added little details like a button fly to make easily the most comfortable pair of boxers we've ever worn. They really fit somewhere in between boxers and briefs, which means there's none of that claustrophobic feeling. You know the feeling. So do yourself a favor and head on over to bedratty.com to pick up a pair and receive 25% off with our exclusive discount code, TFE25. Again, that's bedratty.com, TFE25. Fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. Not to be feared, though, it's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. Jerry, you there? Hey, I'm, I'm right here. How are you doing, Russ? I'm good. I got you on audio on my phone. and then That's Russ Myers. I'm the golf course superintendent at Southern Hills Country Club in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But back in 1994, he was on the maintenance crew at Augusta National Golf Club. And I left in roughly September of 98 if my recollection's right. Was this toward the beginning of your career in the turf industry? It was. It was my first job post-college. Wow. What a job. To many golfers, Augusta National is the pinnacle of golf course conditioning. And it's not hard to see why. If you watch the Masters tournament every year, you can probably call to mind the specific hue of the grass, that vivid, solid green. It's a famous color. And with the 2020 Masters being held this week, I wanted to know more about how it's achieved. That's why I called Russ Myers. Once the Masters is over and everybody leaves, what happens next? Oh, of course, I want to preface it by saying most of my information is from my time there and sometimes past since then. So certainly some of it can have changed. Sure. But immediately following, you know, the green jacket ceremony on the putting green and Butler cabin, the staff and the whole operation goes back into getting it back into member expectations as soon as possible. So that includes, you know, getting scoreboards down, getting bleachers off the site. And the crew has to work quickly because after the Masters, the golf season at Augusta National doesn't last much longer. At, at what point does the club shut down? Roughly speaking, the latter part of May, mid to late May. That's right. When most golf courses are getting ready for their busiest time of year, Augusta National is shutting down. Why? Well, for one... My understanding of the club is it was built to be a winter club. It was never intended to be open in the summer. And two, the maintenance crew uses those summer months for various projects, the most significant of which is making the Bermuda grass on the fairways as sturdy as possible. So that you could get a good overseed again the next, the next fall. Overseeding. That's the big event of Augusta National's off-season. In the fall, just as the Bermuda grass is going dormant for the cool season, the crew overseeds it with ryegrass. In order for this to work, the Bermuda base has to be strong, 
But once the overseeded ryegrass takes hold, it creates a brilliant green carpet that lasts through the winter. And if you get that right, you've got the best playing conditions in the planet for overseeded turf, right? Those conditions tend to peak in April when the Masters is held, or when it's usually held. But overseeding warm season Bermuda grass with cool season ryegrass is a delicate process. There are a million ways to screw it up. You don't disrupt the soil to a point where it'll loosen up or get softer. Keep it as wet as you can without floating, flooding, washing that seed to the point that it establishes. And in the perfect world, you catch enough weather that it doesn't wash out. So overseeding turns out to be very labor intensive, very resource intensive. What, what are some things that you personally remember doing just as tasks during your day when Augusta was <laughs> in the overseeding process? What are, what are some of the things that, that were on your assignment sheet? Um, when I was there, that, that process could take a couple of weeks to get through. I mean, it's a lot of acreage. It takes a lot of prep. And it was kind of a phase deal. You worked your way across the property. My role, for the most part, was to take a small water hose. And I had a map of a fourth of the golf course that had areas that I was to go out and basically keep an eye on and hit multiple times a day. So I was out there with no shoes and socks on and throwing a hose over and walking out to spots and hooking up quick couplers and, and keeping areas that my boss, Brad Owen, or at the time, Marsh Benson, were well aware were the same areas that had trouble germinating each year. Mm. So there would be a map that they would give me and it would have 15 spots on it that they wanted me to go hand water. Sounds complicated. And it really, really is. Yet at Augusta National, the crew, led by Superintendent Brad Owen, seems to execute the overseeding process just right, year after year. It's a fine-tuned art there that certainly is improved upon with experience with doing it. And they obviously have a guy there who's been doing it a long time and is as good as I've ever seen it doing it and seems to do it better every year. But, and let's take another step back here. Why do they do it? I mean, if they just let the summer season Bermuda grass go naturally dormant in the fall and winter, it'll be fine. In fact, it would probably be great. Very fast, very fun to play on. So why go through this yearly grind of closing down and basically installing a whole new surface on top of your golf course? Well, Russ doesn't want to speak for Augusta National's reasoning, and understandably so. He was just doing his job. But I can tell you the main reason that many Bermuda-based golf courses overseed. It's because when Bermuda grass goes dormant, it turns brown. And golfers, generally speaking, are simply not down with brown. This is Fried Egg Stories. I'm Garrett Morrison. In this episode, we ask why Americans devote so much effort and money to perfecting their golf turf. Now, you might think that the desire to cultivate green, uniform grass is simply natural. That humans have always liked that kind of thing. And maybe so. But the particular intensity of joy that we take in perfect turf, that's a fairly recent development. And I think it's worth considering how it happened. The story I'm going to tell focuses on the U.S. in the period after World War II, the 1950s and 60s. That's when the national enthusiasm for maintained turf really took off. And this enthusiasm didn't just change what we expected out of golf courses. It also changed how we took care of the type of grass that many of us know best, our lawns. So today on Fried Egg Stories, a Master's Week special, the American obsession with perfect green turf where it comes from, and how it affects us today. 
So long was a part of my life since I was a, really a toddler. I had a little plastic mower. You know, my father would, when I was eight, 10, whatever, he'd give me these little hand shears to go around to, uh, to clip around the lamppost in the yard. Ted Steinberg is grown up now. Uh, I'm the Davy Professor of History at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. And he's the author of a book called American Green, The Obsessive Quest for the Perfect Lawn, which came out about 14 years ago. The reason I'm talking to Ted is that as I researched this episode, I discovered that understanding the history of lawn maintenance was a great way of understanding the history of golf course maintenance. What we've expected out of our lawns, we've tended to expect out of our golf courses as well. Ultimately, they're both examples of America's growing preoccupation with flawless turf. And lawns, like golf courses, take up a surprising amount of space in this country. Uh, how can we think about how much land is devoted to lawns currently? There's not a tremendous amount of data on this. Satellite data has been used. And what it suggests is there is somewhere, if you took all the lawns in the United States and put them together in one spot, you would have a land area at least the size of, uh, of Kentucky and perhaps as large as Florida. Take, take me back to the beginning here. What are the historical roots of the domestic lawn? The, the lawn goes way back in American history. Washington and Jefferson, of course, had lawns. But the perfect lawn, and by that I mean a weed-free, super green monoculture, that's a much more recent invention. It's the product of a set of forces that began, actually, after the Second World War. A big thing that happened after the war was the massive expansion of the suburbs, and therefore the massive expansion of suburban lawns. One of the earliest and most famous of the new suburbs was Levittown on Long Island, about 30 miles outside of New York City. The founders of it, the Levitt family, basically turned farmland into about 17,000 single-family homes, and each of those homes had a lawn. And the homeowner, of course, had to take care of this um, greensward. In fact, they called it, they called the lawn, uh, the Levitts did, neighborhood stabilization. <laughs> um, so the idea is that, you know, you would project uh, community identity. This idea, we, we're all in this together, we're all taking care of the lawns, we're going to all do our best to make the landscape look relatively uniform and neat. Um, so it doesn't look like a bunch of slobs are living here. In other words, there was social pressure. The lawn became a sign of its owner's virtue, and a messy lawn suggested a messy soul. There were other factors, too, that fed into the craze for turf grass perfection. Uh, one of the things that was going on in the post-war period was um, a kind of change in, believe it or not, in the history of how people understood and used color. And that sounds sort of weird when you say that to people, because most people, uh, unless they're historians, think, you know, what is that about? But actually, if you take a look, you, you find that there's this trend in the post-war period toward brightly colored consumer products. And the, I think the idea was to suggest to the consumer that buying these kinds of like yellow pants or a pink automobile or what have you was a way of projecting uh, an image of yourself as a kind of forward-looking person. And the law got caught up in that. It was the Technicolor age. So, of course, the grass had to be Technicolor green. Problem was, it could be extremely difficult to maintain this kind of grass. Most places in the U.S., the soil and climate just aren't well-suited to it. 
So cultivating the perfect lawn is an uphill battle against nature. And since this is America, that's where consumer industry came into play. You had companies like Scott's, which uh, have been in business for some time, selling grass seed, that uh, were looking to expand their market at a time when tens of millions of people were fleeing the city for the suburbs. And the perfect lawn actually turns out to be something around which you can organize a very, very successful business model. For example, in the late 40s, the Scots developed a product called Weed and Feed, which was essentially a combination of fertilizer and a futuristic herbicide known as 2,4-D. 2,4-D had the seemingly magical capacity to kill weeds, but not grasses. This was then sold to uh, homeowners uh, with the idea that they should be putting down chemical applications you know, for, well, actually more like five, six times, I think six times a year, which is quite a lot of chemical input. Soon, many American homeowners found themselves caught up in what I like to call the lawn care spiral. Because of improved products like 2,4-D, perfection was suddenly possible. But the harder you tried for that perfection, the more kinds of imperfection tended to pop up. If you're going to plant grass around your yard and you have perfection in mind and you want to mow it low, so below three inches, which was common in the post-war period. So you're mowing below three inches. You're getting a crew cut, just like, you know, we used to get the crew cuts as kids and stuff. I mean, that's what people were doing to the lawn. But here's what happens when you do that. Uh, when you start to mow low like that, well, I mean, first of all, you could traumatize the, the grass plant and open it up to, uh, to disease, like fungus. Hmm. Now you have a fungus. That doesn't look so good. Well, now you have to go back to the store. For what? Well, how about a fungicide to get rid of the fungus? You mow it low and you increase the evaporation. And if you increase the evaporation, you have to now pull out the sprinkler. Okay, you're watering away uh, on a regular basis. Well, what happens when you're, water when you're water like that? You're leaching nutrients from the soil. Well, whoa, if you start to leach the nutrients from the soil, where do you head? Back to the, uh, to the hardware store to buy more chemical inputs now, uh, more fertilizer to, to throw down on, on the lawn so that you can then cut it short again, increase the evaporation rate, increase the need for, for fungicide, increase the need for, for more fertilizer and other chemical inputs, and not to mention, of course, the, the, the water that you're using and the, and the oil to run the, the, the mowers and whatever else that, that you're running. And you can very quickly see how this, you know, homeowners were being caught up in this uh, just bizarre kind of uh, never-ending cycle of increasing effort, increasing maintenance, and increasing chemical use. And of course, this was something that you had to pay for on top of everything else. So it was expensive. It's absurd, if you think about it. I mean, really, what's wrong with a little crabgrass or a little brown? There's no reason to be so uptight about our lawns. On the other hand, I get it. About a year ago, my family and I moved to a suburb. And for the first time, we owned a home with lawns that we were supposed to care for ourselves. And I took a relaxed approach. Last fall, I kind of forgot to rake for a few weeks. And the fallen leaves ended up killing some of the grass in our front yard, creating these bare spots. And I was shocked at how ashamed I felt. I looked around at my neighbor's lawns, saw that most of them were better than mine, greener, more uniform, more crew cut, and I thought, this is a judgment on me as a person. 
No, I did not run right out to the hardware store and stock up on Turf Builder, but I understood why someone might. Alright, what does this all have to do with golf? Well, stick with me here, because I think you'll see that the American pursuit of perfect lawn turf very much runs parallel to the American pursuit of perfect golf course turf. They're both motivated by similar desires and enabled by similar technologies. And in both cases, things were different before World War II. Uh, Why don't we just put it this way? So starting in the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s, or what's usually called the golden age of golf course architecture, could you just paint a picture of what golf course conditioning was like in the U.S. in that era? I mean, certainly you would see very different levels of uniformity and consistency on golf courses for a variety of reasons. That's George Waters. And I am the manager of Green Section Education for the United States Golf Association. And George says that the historical record from prior to World War II suggests that greenkeepers were mostly just trying to keep everything alive. And that they weren't striving to have a uniform stand of fescue from tea to green. They were striving to have coverage, you know, vegetative coverage from tea to green as best as was possible. And even when you look at those old photos, you know, they didn't really have that. I mean, they look (laughs) quite inconsistent when you look at them. That inconsistency of golf course turf was inevitable, but it wasn't necessarily considered a bad thing. Some golf architects actually wrote about preferring a little variety in grasses, including one of the architects behind Augusta National. I'm just reading one right now from Alistair McKenzie. This would be in the 1930s, but he talks about how the best golfing grasses vary in color. They may be red, brown, blue, dark green, light green, yellow, at times even white and gray. A golf course that is consisted entirely of one shade of green would be merely ugly. There is great charm and beauty in the varying shades of color on a golf course. So I think that's a pretty interesting perspective there. And it's, you know, I think it's indicative of the fact that the architects of that time were to a large part deriving what they knew about golf from visiting overseas. Visiting specifically Lynx golf courses. In the very earliest days, it was it was a very much a natural kind of maintenance where you see Mackenzie talking about, you know, the rabbits being the primary caretakers of some of these early Lynx and how the, the sort of the rabbity turf was the ideal type of thing to find on Lynx. The coloration on those courses is very inconsistent. You'll see it greener in the hollows between the little wrinkles and then kind of a tanner color up on top. But while you see a kind of a visual inconsistency, the playability is still really, really good. And you get great bounces. You get a good smooth roll on the ball. You can putt from far, far out, in part because the turf isn't, you know, isn't super lush. It isn't super grassy necessarily. So the ball just kind of coasts right across it. So the turf on those old Lynx courses may have been less attractive, at least to a modern eye, but it did its job. Playability was more important than uniformity, and many golfers of the teens, 20s, and 30s seemed to accept that. But these Lynx turf ideals of firmness, naturalness, and variety didn't always translate super well to America. In an American golf context where you're dealing with lusher turf growth for the most part, denser turf growth, when you start to get inconsistencies in that, it doesn't work out as cool as it does on the links. I mean, it just, you know, an inconsistent kind of patchiness on a parkland course isn't going to play as well just by the nature of, of how the grasses are going to perform. Think bumpy and muddy instead of smooth and crispy. So after World War II, 
Just as American homeowners were fighting their way to the perfect lawn, American greenkeepers were trying to solve the problem of turf inconsistency on golf courses. And these greenkeepers, some of whom were now taking on the loftier title of superintendent, would play a key role in the next stage of this history. To learn more about the golf course turf revolution in the period after World War II, I called up Derek Duncan. I have to preface this by saying, you know, I'm, I'm not an agronomist and, uh, you know, some people know, I mean, almost everybody knows a lot more actually about turf and, and maintenance than I do. He's being modest, but it's true. He's not an agronomist. Derek is the associate editor of architecture at Golf Digest and the host of the podcast Feed the Ball. And he's done a lot of research on golf in post-war America. So when you come out of World War II and you enter this period in the 1950s when golf is really beginning to boom, there's a shortage of golf courses in the late 40s and in the early 50s. People are waiting in line to play golf. Golf courses are turning people away. There just aren't enough places to play. People want to practice. There are no practice facilities. So golf is at this like staging point where it's, it's just about to explode, which eventually does happen in, the, in you know, the beginning and middle of the 1950s. Courses start to proliferate. And these new courses mainly serve the middle class. And much like the suburban homes that this middle class was buying up in droves, the golf courses of the post-war period had to be affordable, but nice. They had to be maintained. So suddenly there's an unprecedented need for cheap, systematic methods of greenkeeping. And that's what brought about what Derek calls the age of the superintendent. And I do call it the age of the superintendent because this is when they have at their disposal better fertilizers, better herbicides, better pesticides, better fungicides. They have the ability to access and purchase better mowers, machinery, irrigation systems. Now, you know, prior to the 1950s, in many cases, you would have to kind of walk over to a a spigot, set your sprinkler out, just kind of like we would water our lawns, turn it on for a period of time and turn it off. Now, you know, getting into the 50s, you have automated irrigation. So it's all underground and it's installed and you can you can time it and control it and not have to use the hoses. And, And these are all like huge leaps in technology. And then there were the chemicals. The big breakthrough was was this chemical called 2,4-D. Hey, we know that one. And it's it's an herbicide, and it kills broadleaf weeds, but it doesn't really affect the grass that much. And this was a, this really revolutionized how golf courses could be maintained. The result was a kind of post-war middle-class golf that was, above all, user-friendly. The golfer would pay a reasonable rate and would get a nice course with nice green, uniform turf and not too many surprises. As Derek describes it, this kind of recreation just suited the mood of the era. As you get into the 50s and 60s and you get into this golf development boom and more people want to play the game, more people are coming into the game. So on one hand, you the golf courses for them to be able to function and, and functionality really becomes the principle in, in the majority of golf courses that are built rather than you know making grand architectural statements is they have to be affordable and they have to be able to be easily maintained. So architecturally, they don't need to be that interesting because you just have such a demand from people that just want to get on the golf course. They want to get out and hit a ball and be outside and play 18 holes. This is what's happening in America in the 50s and 60s. I mean, everything is becoming more functional. And it comes at a cost of artistry, of expression. But 
that was less important than functionality and efficiency. And look at the way the uh, shapes of cars changed from the early 50s and through the uh, 50s into the 60s. They become more streamlined. Passenger trains are streamlined. Um, appliances look, you know, <laughs> coffee makers are have this kind of chic, rounded, sleek look. And so everything is really about efficiency, comfort, ease of production. And in society as a whole, as a consumer culture, mass production drives our economy. Golf courses were products of mass production. They were mass produced on the same way, in the same way that that a cars were. They needed to be operational, efficient, and functional. To some, this emphasis on functionality over artistry might sound depressing. But frankly, it's what many Americans wanted after World War II. When you have the Great Depression in the 1930s and Americans now understand a level of poverty that they never did before, a level of displacement, and you come from there and you go into World War II, that, that period in time does something psychologically to, to most Americans. So when, when the war's over and they, they stand there and the dust is cleared, there's no desire to look over your shoulder and look backwards and go back to what was there before you went into that tunnel. You want to go toward the light. It's the uh, idea of great possibility, new frontiers, you know, the, the inter highway interstate system expanding out into the cities, having something of your own that makes your life a little easier and better because psychologically and in the well of our beings, we'd been through this horrible period where we didn't know if we were going to make it out or not. Uh, and, and this is just, that's the America of the 1950s, really. That's kind of the, the launching point for this post-war golf architecture, golf course era of the 50s is this mindset of, we want something new and, and fresh and that's going to be easy to use and it's going to be accessible and, and it doesn't have to be terribly complex or I don't, I don't need to be intellectually challenged by it. And just imagine you're a post-war golfer with that mindset. You're unlikely to be persuaded by romantic arguments from the likes of Alistair McKenzie for splotchy grass or unpredictable lies. When you're out on the course, you're probably just going to prefer green uniform turf. Turf as functional as your car your microwave, or your crew cut, or, for that matter, your lawn. In many ways, we're still living in that 50s, 60s period of golf course maintenance. Most golfers want their playing surfaces to be green and consistent, and they tend to complain when that's not the case. As we've seen, that attitude, that set of expectations, is rooted in post-World War II America, and its culture of ease and functionality. But there is one key difference between then and now, and that's that golf has become more aware of its ecological responsibilities. Yes, golf courses can have a positive impact on the environment, especially compared to other forms of development, but the pursuit of perfect turf is what Ted Steinberg calls an ecological boondoggle. In the American South, for instance, on Bermuda-based golf courses, the desire for green grass has led to widespread overseeding in the fall. We've already talked about how Augusta National overseeds and how it takes a lot of work and a lot of water. Well, until recently, that was the case also at the Pinehurst Resort in North Carolina. When John Jeffries joined the maintenance crew there 20 years ago, overseeding Bermuda with rye was a big part of the annual routine. It was very common practice for the first week of September through the third week of September, our nine, eight golf courses at the time would prepare to overseed. And that was, a, for us, a two-day process of actually spreading the seed, raking it in, 
doing some practices to ensure that the uh, seed to soil contact was good and that we had germination. And then the watering process was two to three weeks after that of a significant amount of water being applied. So it was a disruptive process. It was not fun to play through. And as you may or may not know, that that's a very busy time for us. September golf in the Carolinas is, is big. It's starting to cool down. Kids are back in school, so parents are getting away from the house a little bit to come play some golf. And our conditions are less than ideal. But Pinehurst felt that it had no choice. A lot of their customers came from the Northeast, where the weather wasn't great, but the golf turf was almost always green. They had to have green grass. And ryegrass overseeding was the way to do that. And so that carried on until 2010. And what really kick-started us to thinking differently was the Core Crenshaw Restoration Project of Pinehurst Number 2. The renowned golf architects Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw were brought in to restore Donald Ross's design. And they saw that overseeding had, over time, built up the turf at Course 2 so that it was lush and soft. But they knew that Ross had wanted it to be the opposite, more like the Scottish links he had grown up on. As good as we are as superintendents and communicators, we don't have the pull that someone like Ben Crenshaw and Bill Coor have to say, hey, you need to stop overseeding because course two is meant to play firm and fast. And you're going to have a hard time achieving that with this overseeding. So Pinehurst began to consider letting its Bermuda grass go dormant in the winter. But there was one persistent problem. Our customer base, we felt, demanded lush green grass 365 days a year. And obviously, dormant Bermuda is brown. So what to do? Well, around that time, 2010, some golf courses had actually begun to paint their cool season turf green, which did away with the need to overseed. When he first heard about this, John Jeffries wasn't totally convinced. Uh, could you tell me, by the way, you'll notice a change in the audio quality here. It's a, it's a whole Zoom story. You don't need to hear it. Uh, could you tell me, like, before you saw turf colorants in action... Did you have any particular thoughts about that, about turf colorants? We were hesitant that it would look too artificial, and, and we didn't want course two to look fake. We wanted the color on the ground to be very similar to what our Bermuda grass looks like in June, July, and August versus an overseeded, bright, striped look. And what surprised you about, about them when, when you actually saw how they worked? Um, we were surprised that the, the appearance, you know, these things are, are, as they're advertised, you know, we can customize the colors a little bit and, and get what we want out of it. And, and it's a lot less expensive. The cost of the, the paint is cheaper than the ryegrass seed itself. So those things were surprising. So ever since Corin Crenshaw's restoration 10 years ago, Pinehurst Number no. 2 has let its Bermuda go dormant in the fall. And instead of overseeding, they've broken out the green paint. Now, I'll admit, when I first heard that Pinehurst was using colorants, I thought, you know, here's yet another example of our obsession with perfect turf run amok. But as John explained it all to me, he's now the superintendent at Course 2, I started to come around. Do you, do you have a way of thinking about the environmental impact of turf paint versus overseeding? So, you know, the big thing now for us is water use. That's a, you know, a hot issue in golf is, are we a, a good steward of our water? I could do some easy research back into our data from 
the overseeding days to how much water we use from September 1st to May 1st in dealing with ryegrass versus now. And I would speculate those numbers would be 90% less water used for us Wow, painting versus overseeding. So I guess the big question that maybe even a non-golfer would have looking at this kind of process would be, well, why not just let the grass go brown? There's a lot of golf courses that tolerate dormant surfaces. And primarily in the Carolinas, that would be private clubs who have always done it that way. They never overseeded um, us in the resort industry that had customers coming in from the Northeast that left green grass and wanted to see green grass down here was what drove the decisions to overseed or paint. But we felt like we had to have green grass. And I think golfer appreciation for playing conditions has improved so that I don't know that there's as many golfers or courses that demand lush green anymore and a lot of it has to do with some of the architecture that that goes now and and is appreciated now not only in the united states but when they watch open championships and things and they see how the balls are running and bouncing and, and people are are more demanding of those conditions so all that factors into the the what the golfer wants and what they they want at their club or their resort or where they're going and, and helps us better present those conditions for them by knowing, hey, this is what the customer really wants. They want the playing conditions, but they also want some color. And that's the decision we came to. So John is seeing a little movement in golfers' attitudes toward grass. They still like green, but maybe they aren't looking for Augusta green anymore. Maybe they'd prefer pale turf that's a bit firmer and a bit more sustainable. Of course, it's still just as hard for greenkeepers to meet the new expectations as it was for them to meet the old ones, but just the fact that the expectations have shifted slightly is notable. It should remind us that history produced our obsession with perfect turf, so history should be able to undo it. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily going to happen. I mean, I can't even argue myself out of loving the sight of flawless, orderly, bright green grass. Listen, I I grew up in America— So that post-World War II culture of nice, shiny, bright things, I'm just as susceptible to it as anyone. Right now, as I record this, I've just come in from raking my lawn, and I like how it looks. It's a deep green after the rains we've had recently. Those bare spots grew back a little over the summer. The truth is, this weekend, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to sit down in my easy chair, turn on the TV and let myself drift away into one of the most intensively engineered landscapes in America, a perfect green world where everything is fine and there's nothing to fear. This was the 11th episode of Fried Egg Stories. It's produced and hosted by me, Garrett Morrison, with engineering from Jay Verrick and transcript assistance from Jay Fischel. Our executive producer is Andy Johnson. Many thanks to Russ Myers, Ted Steinberg, George Waters, Derek Duncan, and John Jeffries. Ted Steinberg's book, once again, is called American Green, and I'd also like to recommend George Waters' book, Sand and Golf. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating and review in iTunes. Those help us out. You can also find me on Twitter at GFordGolf and the fried egg at the fried egg with underscores between each word. 
Don't be a stranger, and thanks for listening.